This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. We're going to take a time out in this episode from our chronicling of the Trump kleptocracy and his assault on democracy in order to deliver to you an episode of Mea Culpa that you will not soon forget. Think of it as an early holiday gift, something to talk about at the Thanksgiving table with your anti-vax QAnon-loving uncle who thinks that Dr. Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates are part of a global cabal of blood-drinking lizard people. That's right, folks. We're about to take a trip together down the rabbit hole of disinformation with one of the leading prophets of the anti-vax movement, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. It's not often that I have someone on this show where I am in fundamental disagreement with literally everything that comes out of his mouth. But today was one of those days. In a column for Politico magazine, former Congressman Joseph Kennedy II, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, and her daughter Maeve Kennedy McCain criticize RFK Jr.'s longtime anti-vaxxer efforts. They write he has helped spread dangerous misinformation over social media and is complicit in sowing distrust of the science behind vaccines. Even if this was the deadly disease that they say it is, there's worse things than death. And there was a whole generation, not to may sound cold and people get mad at me for saying it, but we're lucky that there was a whole generation of Americans in 1776 who said it would be better to die than to not have these rights written down. And they gave us that. They gave us that gift of that Bill of Rights. And in one year, at the bidding of a doctor, because he's telling us, you know, you need to do this to say them, and orchestrated fear, and you know, all of the weird stuff they did with the numbers, which is not what public health is supposed to be doing. In one year, all of those rights have been taken away from us. To say I'm in a daze would be putting it mildly. Bobby Kennedy Jr. is a force of nature, relentless in his approach. He doesn't discuss as much as he bulldozes his point across with a fervor of a man possessed. In his mind, I'm sure he thinks he's right. Now, I'm not here to question his motives, and he certainly has the right to his opinion, as I have mine. But it would be irresponsible of me to not point out that the science that you will hear him spout to make his points is, I believe, to be of dubious abstraction. There have been 17,000 deaths reported to VAERS on the COVID vaccines. And that's more deaths in the last eight months than all of the deaths from all vaccines, the billions and billions of vaccines combined over the past 30 years. So this vaccine is, appears to be killing more people than all vaccines combined. There's more reports of deaths following vaccination. Here's the problem, is that the VAR system doesn't work. It is designed, in fact, to fail. It's designed to undercount Injuries. The website Media Bias Fact Check calls Kennedy's corporation, Children's Health Defense, a strong conspiracy and quackery level advocacy group. President-elect Trump was very thoughtful on the issue. He asked me to chair a commission on vaccine safety. Vaccine safety. Yeah. And, uh, and scientific integrity. An academic paper published in January of 2020 reported that Children's Health Defense was one of two buyers accounting for 54% of anti-vaccine advertising content on Facebook. 
Kennedy himself is part of the disinformation dozen. A gaggle of influencers generating two-thirds of anti-vaccination content on Facebook and Twitter, according to a recent assessment. Instagram banned him from their platform earlier this year, although his corporation's account remains active. These are 12 super spreaders of digital misinformation. They're people who, with companies behind them, charities, large organizations, often hundreds of staff and millions of dollars to spend, that they have become the, the producers of the best quality, most shareable misinformation. And we calculated that these 12 individuals make up two-thirds of all misinformation shares on social media. The reason why companies haven't taken action? Well, because frankly, they're a draw. They are eyeballs to their sites. And in the end, because of the way that liability works on social media platforms, no one can actually get them to take take action against these people. They don't have to close their accounts down, even when the President of the United States says that their inaction is costing lives. Kennedy is also famously litigious and has on numerous occasions sued everyone from Facebook to the liberal-leaning website Daily Kos for what he considers various wrongs and injustices. Last week, Kennedy joined a lawsuit against Massachusetts Senator and liberal stalwart Elizabeth Warren. According to The Hill, Chelsea Green Publishing Inc., which is behind the book The Truth About COVID-19, exposing the Great Reset, lockdowns, vaccine passports, and the new normal, filed the lawsuit against Warren in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. The book's co-authors, Joseph Mercola and Ronald Cummins, in addition to Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who authored the foreword, are also listed as plaintiffs. The lawsuit is arguing that a letter Warren sent to Amazon CEO Andy Jassy on September 7th included false statements and unsubstantiated accusations about the book. The book which was published in April, encourages unproven and potentially dangerous COVID-19 treatments, in addition to baselessly claiming that the coronavirus vaccines authorized by the government have not been adequately tested, according to the Associated Press. In her letter to Jazzy in September, Warren said that when her staff searched using the terms COVID-19 and vaccine, the first result listed was the book by Mercola and Cummins. She noted that Mercola has been described as the most influential spreader of coronavirus disinformation, writing that the book perpetuates dangerous conspiracies about COVID-19 and false and misleading information about vaccines. It's an unproven vaccine. It's just being accelerated and eliminated virtually every safety study. He is the ultimate super spreader, not of the coronavirus experts say, but of misinformation about COVID-19. His name is Dr. Joseph Mercola. It is very likely that most people in America, if not, you know, the vast majority of people in America have seen misinformation that has originated with this super spreader of lies and misinformation. That's exactly why the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a nonprofit tracking misinformation about COVID online, put Dr. Mercola, an osteopathic physician, at the top of its disinformation dozen. 
A list of 12 people, the group says, were the source for sharing 65% of all anti-vaccine messaging on Facebook and Twitter. Warren argued that Amazon's algorithm is adding to the problem of misinformation spreading online, calling the company's practices unethical, unacceptable, and potentially unlawful. As cases of COVID-19 continued to rise, Amazon is feeding misinformation loops through its search and bestseller algorithms, potentially leading countless Americans to risk their health and the health of their neighbors based on misleading and inaccurate information that they discover on Amazon's website, she wrote. Mercola posits that the pandemic is part of something called the Great Reset, which holds that a vague, shadowy cabal of global elites either engineered the pandemic or are opportunistically using it as a means to destroy everything good in the world and build a post-crisis totalitarian dystopia in which average people live benighted lives of slavery solely to serve the interests of the ruling class. The New York Times recently looked into one man who many say is the most influential spreader Osteopathic physician Joseph Mikola has become the chief spreader of coronavirus misinformation online, the Times reports. His audience is substantial. Dr. Mercola's official English language Facebook page has over 1.7 million followers, while his Spanish language page has 1 million followers. The Times also found 17 other Facebook pages that appeared to be run by him or were closely connected to his businesses. On Twitter, he has nearly 300,000 followers, plus nearly 400,000 on YouTube. Unfortunately for Kennedy, who likes to quote his late father as well as his uncle JFK as inspiration, the anti-vax movement shares some unpleasant bedfellows, which include the extreme right, neo-Nazis, QAnon, and your fucking crazy uncle who believes in chemtrails. It doesn't make Kennedy an adherent or believer of these nasty ideologies, but it does make one wonder what kind of a club he's joined. COVID-19 is a power grab hoax. Then there is 5G. Looks dodgy to me. Possible alien life. We do not consent. I'm here. I don't want to be vaccinated. I want to be free. I want to live my life. I want all my friends to live their lives. You know. Hey. They thought they could easily get their great reset. Little did they know, little did they know. They thought they could easily have it. Pandemic's a they know. This past May, Kennedy sued liberal website The Daily Kos for refusing to unmask one of its community members who said that an event Kennedy attended in Berlin for anti-vaxxers was organized by neo-Nazis. Here's the backstory according to Tech Dirt. Last summer, Kennedy spoke at an August 29th rally convened by the German far right to protest government restrictions aimed at corralling the COVID pandemic. Kennedy was, apparently, the third choice speaker after appeals from a right-wing group called Querdanker to Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin went unheeded. But when this group learned that Kennedy was coming to Germany for other reasons, it issued a public invitation and he responded. They came by the thousands to demand Germany's government change its course in the corona crisis. 
But for many, the demonstrations in the heart of Berlin ended in arrest. Police say they were forced to make the detentions after far-right activists who marched alongside coronavirus skeptics clashed with police. A small group even managed to storm the steps of the German parliament before being detained. Saturday's demonstrations attracted a wide coalition of activists, from right-wing radicals to those who reject the authority of the German government or doubt the severity or even existence of the pandemic. They were unified by one belief, the government's measures to tackle the coronavirus pandemic go too far. The German right waxed rhapsodic about the way in which Kennedy's presence was lending legitimacy to their activity. The rally and his speech were widely covered in the mainstream media, which reported that the rally was heavily attended by neo-Nazis and that a variety of anti-Semitic and neo-Nazi factions had been involved in organizing the event. Kennedy was infuriated by this coverage of the audience, to whom he had become connected by speaking at the rally. His position is that any neo-Nazis were at some other rally on the same day, and that Kwadunkin is a fine group unsullied by neo-Nazi or anti-Semitic ties. Kennedy hired the preeminent law firm these days for trying to shut people up. Boy Schilla Flexner. As you may recall, the Boyce in Boyce Schiller Flexner is David Boyce, who famously was deeply involved in trying to silence Harvey Weinstein's accusers, deeply involved in trying to punish Theranos whistleblowers, and also tried to silence reporting on the Sony hack years back. The Daily Kos is appealing the lawsuit in court, and as of November 10th, had won a major ruling preventing the subpoenaing of the anonymous blogger who first wrote the account. Now, I'm not pointing any fingers at Kennedy here. Hell, I worked for fucking Donald Trump for more than a decade. I'm merely pointing out that his fixation has spewed a long trail of litigation for those who dare cast him in an unsavory light. I must state that I am not doing that. I'm sure that he had no idea that there were Nazis in attendance or that the protest had been organized by far-right adherents. These groups are often big tents filled with a myriad of opposing and differentiating ideologies that can be difficult to discern or understand to outsiders. And now for the main event. My next guest is none other than Robert Kennedy Jr. He joins me today on Mea Culpa to discuss his latest book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health. In it, he lays out the case for the criminal prosecution of Fauci for gross negligence and profiting off the pandemic, which he says Fauci is partially responsible for. To be honest, I couldn't keep track of half of what he was saying, and it's really up to you to take it all in and decide for yourselves if what he says makes sense, or if he's tinfoil hat-wearing lunatic who's trading on his family name while endangering the lives of millions. Again, not for me to say. What you're about to hear is being broadcast word for word as it happened, without editing in all of its gonzo glory. Truth of fiction. 
Science and madness. You'll have to make up your own mind. One thing I can guarantee is that it won't be boring. So let's go now to that conversation. So Robert, in your new book, The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health, you paint Anthony Fauci as an almost super villainous character with outsized power, saying that Dr. Fauci's COVID policies also spawned new insidious authoritarianism and propelled America down a slippery slope toward a grim future as a dark totalitarian security and surveillance state. If you would do me the favor, unpack this for my listeners um, and for me, if you could, because I was a little bit confused in terms of what this was really saying. Well, what I do is I, I trace Anthony Fauci's 50 years as the top banjerum of public health in our country. Um, and the uh, and I show how he he has metamorphosized not just NIH, but all of HHS, so that it has deprioritized public health. I would say that particularly in his agency, NIAID, no longer does anything to do with public health. It's really all about pharmaceutical product development. He's become uh, the leading incubator for the pharmaceutical industry, for new pharmaceutical products. His money was intended initially, he got $7.7 billion in federal money. Um, $6.1 billion of that annually comes from the taxpayers, and then about $1.6 comes from the military to do weapons research, bioweapons research, and uh, which is why he was doing those gain-of-function studies in Wuhan. But instead of spending that money researching, um, you know, why American health is declining so precipitously, he uses that money to develop new drugs. So between 2009 and 2016, there was about 240 new drugs that were approved by FDA. And all of those came through Tony Fauci's shop. And he, his agency gets to keep patents on those. For example, the Moderna vaccine, um, which has received billions in federal dollars, his agency owns half the patent and stands to make tens of billions of dollars in royalties. Not only that, but individuals who he selects, his loyal deputies, who worked on that vaccine, on the approvals and development of that vaccine, um, get to keep if he if he agrees and he has four of his deputies will get a marching rights for the patent. So they will get $150,000 a year in royalties from the Moderna vaccine on top of their federal government salaries. And um, and we've seen, you know, our nation really transformed largely because of policies that he set in motion so that America, that when I was a boy, when he came to power in the, uh, in the mid-70s, America was the healthiest nation in the world. Today, we are 79th in terms of, you know, by, by all the indicia of public health, giant infant mortality and longevity and uh, medical costs, 
we use more medical products, more pharmaceutical products than any other nation in the world. We use three times the average in the other Western nations. We pay the highest prices for pharmaceutical products, and we have by far the worst health outcomes anywhere in the developed world. So, and, and as I show in the book, those metrics are largely the result of policies that he directly supervised or orchestrated or put in motion. You can't blame Tony Fauci completely for this terrible decline in American health, but he, he could have prevented it um, himself, one, one person, if he had done his job. What he does, he, his, his agency was supposed to do scientific research. So we've seen, I'll, I'll give you an example. We, when he came into office, the chronic disease rate among Americans was 6%. 6% of Americans had chronic disease. Today, 54% of Americans have chronic disease. And by chronic disease, I mean basically three categories. Well, there's obesity, and then there's three additional categories, which are neurodevelopmental diseases. These would include ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, narcolepsy, um, ASD, autism, the allergic diseases which suddenly appeared in 1989, peanut allergies, food allergies, celiac disease, uh, asthma, anaphylaxis, eczema, which, you know, none of these diseases, I didn't know nobody who had these diseases as a kid. In 1989, suddenly you had this pandemic or epidemic of chronic disease. And then finally, the autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, lupus, Crohn's disease, Graves' disease, all of these appeared around 1989. We know that, there, that they, the cause is or causes our environmental toxins because genes don't cause epidemics. And it's Tony Fauci's job to identify the cause of these diseases and then to develop strategies for eliminating those exposures. And it's a pretty easy job to do because there's only there's a limited number of toxic exposures that began in 1989 and affected every demographic. So you can easily divide, you can easily figure this out. What he does, he and his colleagues Bill Gates and Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Gates Foundation. Together, those three men control 61% of biomedical research in the world. They fund but they control about 99% because they can not only decide which studies get funded, but they can ruin people and destroy institutions that do science that they don't want. So that most of the, all of the medical schools in America are, are dependent on funding from Tony Fauci. He gives hundreds of millions of dollars a year to Harvard, to Baylor, to Stanford, to Berkeley, et cetera. And if, they, if there's a young professor, associate professor at one of those university medical schools that says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to get a hold of the Kaiser Permanente HMO database. And I'm going to look, I'm going to look at all of the vaccine records for those patients. And then I'm going to look at the medical claims. 
And I'm going to do a cluster analysis and see which of these chronic diseases is associated with which vaccine. If a young professor said, I'm going to do that study, which nobody's ever done before, and it is an obvious study to do, his dean will get a call as soon as it's known what he's up to from Cliff Lane or from one of, you know, uh, Fauci's hitmen who will tell the dean of that medical school, if you allow this joker to proceed with that kind of um, study, that kind of research, we are going to bankrupt your university. Oh, that's why we are in the midst of this health crisis in our country, this chronic disease health crisis, which dwarfs the cost of COVID. And, you know, we've gone from autism rates in my generation, I'm 67. In my generation of 67-year-old men, the autism rate is about one in in 5,000 to one in 10,000. In my children's generation, it's one in every 34 children, one in every 22 boys. How come we don't have a clear answer of what's causing that? That is a much bigger crisis than COVID because COVID you know, kills older people at the age they would normally die. This is destroying young people at birth who have 70 or 80 years in front of them and destroying their productivity, not only them, but their whole families. And it's one in every 22 boys in our country. It affects our national security, our productivity, our tax base, um, the allocation of vital resources, our GDP, our GNP, everything. And it is permanent. So why don't we know the answer to that question? The answer to that is Tony Fauci. Uh, look, you blame a lot on Tony Fauci, on Bill Gates and Big Pharma and so on. I'm not so sure that it's Dr. Fauci who approves the drugs. I don't believe that it's him individually. I think that there are panels. Um, I don't let believe. Me, let me tell you. I don't, I don't, I don't, believe, I don't Michael, believe that. Michael, let me tell you about the panels. So... If you look at the people who served it, and this is what Tony Fauci says. He says, uh, you know, the drug approvals are given by these panels, by the drug monitoring boards, and by the two panels at FDA and CDC. Those panels are called VERPAC, the FDA panel, which approves new drugs and licenses them. At CDC, it's called an ASIP, the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. And but if you look at the member, the people who sit on those panels are not FDA or CDC employees largely. They're independent researchers who have an expertise in the area of the drug that they're approving. So let's say vaccines, and they'll have vaccine rep, 22 people or eight people on those panels. If you look at the conflicts of interest statements, by those panelists. Virtually all of them are actually Tony Fauci's grantees. Oh, he controls those panels. He controls the people who get on those panels. He rewards the people who sit on, sit on those panels. He and the pharmaceutical companies, because they're working for pharma too, reward the ones when they vote correctly. And that's why virtually all of their decisions are unanimous and they never say no to a drug. It's, and the, the, the idea, the argument that these are independent panels that are separate from Tony Fauci is a charade. If you actually. Well, let me, let me say this. Well, let, let, but Robert, Robert, let me, Robert, let me stop you for one second. In my book. 
and I show each one of those panels who the people are and how many millions of dollars that they have taken from Tony Fauci. Well, let me, let me stop you for just one second here, because you also made mention that, you know, um, being 65, I'm 55. Uh, when I was in summer camp, for example, in 19, I think it was like 75, 76, we had kids there who had lupus. I, I remember there was a kid who lived in my bunk who had eczema, but really significant, um, you know, eczema, where he was on some experimental medication. Now I suspect that he would be on something else. But I do want to just move on for a second. And, in relationship... These diseases did not exist. When I was a kid, Michael, I had three vaccines. My children got 72 doses of 16 vaccines. And they ramped up in the 70s and the late 60s and early 70s. But really, most of the vaccines were added to the schedule in 1989. Because in 1986, the law was changed to, uh, to give blanket immunity from liability to vaccine companies. So now, no matter how negligent they are, no matter how reckless their behavior, no matter how grievous your injury, no matter how toxic the the ingredients, you cannot sue them. And that all of a sudden made vaccines immensely popular, uh, uh, profitable. And it was a gold rush add a new vaccine to the schedule, and they end up adding all these vaccines that nobody needs, that do no good, that clearly... Well, look, 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 Robert, I got to stop you on that one. I'm not so sure that you and I are going to agree on whether or not the vaccines are good or not, and I well, know let's talk that you don't like... I don't like... I know that you, know, you don't Michael, like... Let's when, talk about uh, Robert, let me, let me finish. Robert, let me... Let, let me just finish this. All right. Let me finish this thought. I know that you don't want people to think of you as an anti-vaxxer. Um, and that's absolutely okay. And I know that you have, you know, your, um, your, your company, your children's health defense and so on. But I do want to just ask you this in relationship to the coronavirus, because you've been quoted as saying, we have to love our freedom more than we fear a germ. Referring to the coronavirus, even this, even if this was the deadly disease that they say it is, there's worse things than death. Now, I'm curious, as a guy who blew a series of pulmonary embolus and sat for about a week in the ICU, not sure if I was going to make it or not, what in your mind is worse than death? Uh, the loss of all of our constitutional rights, uh, much worse than death. And, that, and luckily, luckily, Michael... There was a group of people in 1776 in this country who also agreed with me on that and considered and put their livelihoods, put their careers, put their property and put their lives on the line to give us the Bill of Rights, which in one year, virtually all of the Bill of Rights have been taken away from us, beginning with freedom of speech, with jury trials, with freedom of assembly, with due process, with property rights. They closed a million businesses with no just compensation, no due process. They abolished jury trials for vaccine companies. Uh, they've abolished freedom of speech. And well, I'm, one day I'm going to hope you're going to introduce me. Robert, one day... worse than death. Robert, one day I hope you'll introduce me to somebody who's going to argue First Amendment constitutional rights that died. Uh, but in that time, I want to discuss I, your book I don't know for a what second. You just said. I don't know what you just said. <laughs> well, what, what you're saying is I'm saying that there's nothing in life that's worse than death. And you're talking about property rights and you're talking about First Amendment rights. There are no First Amendment rights for people who are dead. Um, but I do want to go ahead and just ask you something about your book. Because in your book and in numerous interviews, 
You claim that the vaccine is being used to survey, track, or trace the U.S. population. I found this to be extraordinary, by the way. Moreover, you were barred from Instagram over a post that linked Bill Gates to the injection of microchips into individuals with a quote that read, and this is your quote, the digitalized economy, we get rid of cash and coins, we give you a chip, we put all your money in your chip. If you refuse a vaccine, we turn off the chip and you starve. Let's start with the wilder of the accusations here. Where's the proof, scientific proof, that Bill Gates is injecting Americans with microchips? And furthermore, what's, his, what's really his incentive for doing so? I never said that. I don't believe, well, it's in, it's I don't in your believe book. Michael. I don't believe he is. I don't know where you're getting this stuff. You certainly haven't read my book because my book doesn't say anything like that. My book has 2,200 footnotes. Every statement in it is sourced and cited to a public database or a peer-reviewed publication. Oh, I don't see, and I never said anything like what you just attributed to me. Those are the kind of things that pharmaceutical propaganda says that I said, but they're not quoting me. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. I never I never said that anybody was injecting us with that the vaccine, the COVID vaccines contain chips that are tracking and tracing us, which you just accused me of. You should read. Well, the book uh, look, you should look, read let me book. let me say this. Let, Robert, let me say this as somebody you invite me on your show, as okay. you said you would. And, okay, so let me, and, Robert, and, let me just say this Michael, as somebody, as somebody, Robert, as somebody who has been um, attacked for, by misinformation, disinformation. If that's not what you said, it's my it's my mistake. It was in my investigation, my review on you know, um, various different articles and so on. If in fact that that's accurate, I take it back. Unlike the press that refuses to acknowledge, I never went to Prague. I never met with compromats. I was never involved in most of the things. Uh, it, actually, I was never involved in any of the items that are discussed in the Steele dossier. I take it back. I apologize. It's my mistake. Uh, and I'm glad that we're both on the same, on the same page because I found it to be, in all fairness, I, I thought it was batshit crazy, to be honest with you. Microchips inside of a vaccine in order to shut off our money and so on. I didn't even, I was anxious to hear, you know, the response that, you know, that you had to it, but I'm happy to hear that you don't agree with that either. So let me just then move on and hope that I get right the next, the, the next topic here. Uh, by the way, what, Michael. The, the quote that you read from me is a conflated quote. I've been a critic of digitalized currency. I, I know that, you know, that Gates has been promoted, promoting digitalized currency, and now we're seeing it, I said, from the beginning of the pandemic. This is going to be one of the objectives is to digitalize the currency because it's a mechanism for control. It's like the vaccine passport is a mechanism for control. And if you can digitalize currency and get rid of paper money, you can do those things. You can punish people who are non-compliant. You can go into their payroll. You you can now. I mean, we now there's now programmable money. So that, for example, if you live in New York City, um, or let's say you live in Greenwich, Connecticut, and you don't take your vaccine, you could if we when we have digitalized currency and passbooks. Your capacity to spend money when you leave your town can be shut off. 
your capacity to spend money at anything other than, for example, food stores can be cut off. We, you know, the, the capacity for programmable, programmable money is there, and it is part of the plan with, for the digitalized passport. I just came back from Europe, and they're doing vaccine passports there now. Why would you want a vaccine passport for a vaccine that does not prevent transmission? Nobody believes it can prevent transmission or prevent the spread of the virus. So why are we having it? Well, it's informative that the vaccine passports are not being issued by the health agencies. They're being issued by the finance ministries. And clearly, they're going to be linked to people's digitalized currencies and bank accounts, and it is a mechanism for control. But I never said that the COVID vaccines had chips in them that were going to track and trace people. So the quote that you read from me, half of it is accurate, but together it's utterly inaccurate. And it does seem batshit crazy if somebody said that about the current vaccines. Yeah, actually, I apologize. The article came out of Forbes, and it was not from the book, but rather from your Instagram account. Uh, and you're right. Uh, it, it specifically states there uh, from a photo that you posted of Bill Gates with uh, the words, the digitalized economy. We get rid of cash and coins. We give you a chip. We put all your money in your chip. If you refuse a vaccine, we turn off the chip and you starve. That was that the Instagram quote. never said the chips were injected. Bill Gates has been very, very open that he's developing those chips. He's patented them. Microsoft has the patent for that chip. This is, I cited all of it. He has three different companies that are making those chips. And what he says, you know, to his credit, because it's important to understand his point of view, what he would say today is those chips, those subdermal chips, which will be injected to people, not with a vaccine, but they're injectables subdermal chips that you will then carry for life. It's important, he says, to have those chips, and this is why he says he is developing them, so that people in the developing world will be able to carry their medical records on their persons, so that if you're a refugee or if you're a child and you don't know what vaccines you got, you'll be able to carry that chip. It will have your medical records. It will have your financial records. You'll be able to scan the person's skin and figure out whether you had a polio vaccine two years ago or not and figure out what vaccines to give them. So it's not... You know, this is what this is what Bill Gates says. And what I've said is that is a dangerous concept. You know, it may have a very, very benevolent explanation for it. Once you start telling people that it's permissible to carry chips in their body that have all of their records on them that are scannable, it's pretty easy for anybody who cares about civil liberties to understand that that system not only can be misused, but it definitely will be misused. Yeah, um, uh, understood. Me, I just waited for the FBI to come and take my cell phones and my computers to have all my information, but I, I hear you. And, you know, as part of this Forbes article, and it doesn't state that this came from you, but it does turn around and say also uploaded with the photo were separate videos of Bill Gates speaking about making vaccinations a high priority with other clips that reference identity control that appear to link uh, a coronavirus vaccine 
with controlling or tracking people with microchips. That's why I just figured the only with the vaccine that somewhere obviously it has to be injected into you. I mean, certainly no one's going to go into the knife and have a microchip put into their head. But I just want to move on for a second no, because I, I want to get there, Robert. There, I want to get your listen, Michael. He has patented, and Microsoft has separately patented, injectable chips. You don't go under surgery. They're injected with a hypodermic needle. And that's what they do, and that's what he says they do. Like, this is, you know, if you look at, I, know, I published that on my Instagram, which was you know, then removed. So you can't go and look that up. But I simultaneously publish everything that I publish on Instagram. I simultaneously publish on the Defender with all the citations in it embedded. Oh, anybody. And, and by the way, Instagram was not able to point to a single erroneous, actually erroneous statement that I've ever made or ever posted. And Instagram had to deny me the right of appeal. They gave that right to when they, when they um, evicted President Trump. It gave him the right to appeal. They would not give me that right because they knew that I would win because I never posted one item that was erroneous. Everything I posted was cited and sourced. Well, then I'm going to ask you this. What's your response then to critics who charge that you're spreading vast amounts of misinformation about the COVID-19 virus, that you're a part of this entire disinformation dozen with folks like Joseph Mercola, <laughs> for whom you wrote a forward to his book, and that what you're doing is actually dangerous. Well, what I do is tell the truth. And, you know, if you're telling me that the public can't handle the truth, and I would say you don't believe in democracy. You know, if you want to manipulate the public by telling them things that aren't true or by stopping them from um, getting access to facts, and I would say you are a guy who, you know, doesn't like democracy because democracy is based upon the idea that a free flow of information will allow the best ideas to triumph in the marketplace of ideas and that they can then be used to craft policies that are, uh, the, you know, the, the best policies for our country. And I don't know how you run a democracy if you think we should hide facts from the public. I don't, I don't know who's in charge of that. Well, I'm, I, I agree with you. I totally agree well, with you. Mark that Zuckerberg to be able to tell what you can or Adam Schiff to tell what you can hear, what facts you're allowed to hear and have access to or not. There, there's something really like an undemocratic and very sinister about that. We should be telling people the truth. Well, I'm not questioning what you're saying about telling the truth or democracy requires the rights of free speech and so on. The point that I was trying to make is that the there are critics out there of you who claim that you're spreading not just vast sure. amounts hey, of Michael. misinformation. Hey, and what I'm going to ask sure, you is, Michael, I'm sure you have your critics, too. So let me say I this. Do. And Michael, let me say this. Don't just repeat what critics say. Do a little bit of homework. Tell me one thing that I've said, one statement that I've said that is erroneous. None of those people who are my so-called critics can show me one statement that I have made that's erroneous. Well, you know, do a little homework. Instead of just doing what your enemies have done to you, 
trying to do the same thing to me by just passing on these kind of vague allegations that I did something that said... Well, to, to the contrary, Robert, I'm not... But Robert, show me Robert, some to the misinformation that I repeated. Right, but to the contrary, I'm not attacking you in the way even remotely close to the way I was attacked by my critics. I'm only stating as a uh, as a radio show podcaster that and and again you had to listen to the very what's your response to critics i'm giving you the opportunity to have a platform to my 1.5 plus million you know listeners i'm asking you your response to critics i'm not criticizing you uh, okay and, well, and, my response is show me something that i said that was actually incorrect you won't find it okay and th there's there's the answer and, and but by the does, way, that doesn't mean that at some point, you know, I've just written a 500-page book. There'll be something in that book that is incorrect, not deliberately, but just because that's the nature when you, you know, when you're reciting tens of thousands of facts, you're bound to get one that's wrong. But if somebody shows me a fact that I said that was wrong, what's my response going to be? My response can be apologize and take it down and say I made a mistake. You know, I'm not going to... I'm not going to put something, listen, on my board, my advisory board, I have Luc Montagnier, the Nobel Prize winner, who won the Nobel Prize for developing the for discovering the HIV virus. I have the former head of the National Toxicity Program. I have 312 PhD scientists and doctors, high-level people. If I was passing misinformation, those people would be running away from me. The reason they come to Children's Health Defense is because we have the most rigorous fact-checking team in the publishing industry today. We are the only people who are doing rigorous fact-checking. Well, then do, let me ask you this. Sure, but let me ask you this. Does it concern you then that your book and its views are being given the most prominent airtime from people like Tucker Carlson, who believes that the January 6th insurrection was an inside job created to crack down on the far right? Well, I don't, I don't make it. Listen, I'll talk to anybody. I'll talk to the biggest idiot in the world. And I'll talk to criminals. If I'm, if they're the only way that I can get my message out, you know, Anderson Cooper is not going to put me on CNN because CNN is run by pharmaceutical companies. That gives, you know, 70% of the revenues, the evening news are coming from, from the NPR is, you know, Bill Gates given $319 million to the public television and, and to the, to the so-called independent news. So there's anybody who wants to criticize pharmaceutical products or government or question government policies cannot do that on normal network TV or the social media. They're thrown off. If you're a person who has suffered a vaccine injury and you talk about that on Facebook, you will be ev evicted. You're not, you will never get on a TV program to talk about that. When Ron Johnson, senator from Wisconsin, had a group of people of physicians and people who've been injured, clearly injured by vaccines, including people who are part of Pfizer's clinical trial, and did a public hearing in front of the United States Senate Committee last week, 
and recorded their sworn testimony. And all of that was removed from YouTube because you're you're not you are no longer allowed to criticize government policies. So, yeah, I will go to places that, you know, with people. Who, but I've always done that, Michael. I've always been willing to talk to people who don't agree with me on on virtually anything. In fact, you know, I've been on Hannity probably a dozen times. Hannity and I agree on literally zero. But I don't I think democracy is about building bridges to people with whom you don't agree with creating, you know, finding where there is common ground with other human beings. The biggest thing, the big, the most important productive strategy for the big tech around the oligarchs and the intelligence agencies and the pharmaceutical companies who are trying to impoverish us and, you know, and, and dramatically uh, um, and, and obliterate democracy their strategy is to create fear and division. So orchestrated fear and then divide Republicans from Democrats and you know blacks from whites and get a lot of infighting so nobody notices that they are making themselves billions and billions and while they impoverish the rest of us and, and, and execute the controlled demolition of American constitutional democracy. And we need to talk. I probably agree with you on almost nothing. I came on here because I'm willing to talk to anybody who's willing to listen about this. You know, I think we need to start talking to each other, even about with people whom we don't agree. My father told me that partisanship is poison, that it's dishonest, it's intellectually dishonest, it's tribalism, it's bad for democracy. And that we need to start talking to people as human beings and not as Republicans and Democrats. Now, I don't have to agree with Tucker Carlson on on anything. If he invites me on his show, I'm going to go on it because he has a big audience. And I I don't have to agree with you, Michael. I appreciate you letting me talk to your audience. But I'm going to do that. I, I do not endorse your. It doesn't mean I'm endorsing your views. Well, I totally agree and vice versa. But it's funny, I was listening to you talking about the destruction of democracy and, um, and how, uh, the tribalism, you know, is a big part of it. It sounded so much to me like Donald J. Trump in terms of the whole Trump administration. I couldn't help but thinking that this goes way farther than just merely, uh, vaccinations, anti-vax concepts and so on. But I do want to ask you, Robert, based on your findings, Michael, I am not anti-vaccine. I'm just against untested and bad vaccines. I have nothing against vaccines. If a vaccine is properly tested and if there is a test that shows that people who take that vaccine four or five years later are healthier than those who didn't, I would absolutely endorse that vaccine. Show me one of the vaccines where that test has been done. What I've said for years is vaccines are exempt from safety testing. It's the only medical product that is exempt from safety testing. And none of the 72 vaccines currently mandated for our children have ever been safety tested in preclinical trials against a placebo. So nobody knows their risk profile. Nobody can say that they're causing more, that they're averting more harm than they're causing. What about, what about the vaccination of polio? And I mean, we basically eradicated. You know, I've said this for years. So I met with Tony Fauci in 2016 because Trump made a meet with me. 
And I said, and I said to Tony Fauci, you know, I've said for years, none of these vaccines are tested. And you've said, I'm not telling the truth. So now here we are together. Show me one study that's ever been done. And he said, I don't have them on me. I'll get back to you. He never got back to me. So I sued him and sued HHS and said, show me one study, one preclinical study on vaccine safety that has ever been done, a placebo-based study. And after a year and a half of litigation, they came back and said, you're right. We don't have any. And you can go look at their concession on CHD's website today. Welcome to Missed Riffs, stories of artists who dreamt of becoming the next Rolling Stones, but ended up rolling burritos instead. Can I get extra guac on that? I'm Matt Pinfield. Today we are looking at an actual success story. Legendary Ford Bronco pitchman John Bronco was known for his bushy mustache, incredible catchphrases, and machismo exterior that made him one of the most popular TV pitchmen in history. This truck's tougher than your mama's daddy, so hit the road. It's got my name on it, so you know it plays dirty. Yes, baby, it's meaner than a wet panther you forgot to invite to your birthday party. Oh. But not many people knew Bronco actually had a pretty successful music career. The story goes, one afternoon, John was doing some Ford radio promos when he found a guitar in the booth. It changed his life forever. Mama, shit made me Bronco. Cause I'm tough as nails, there's no place I can go. The track Mama Named Me Bronco is the only commercial jingle ever to go triple platinum. Yeah, man, I was the engineer on that session. It was like it was like watching Jimi Hendrix cut Foxy Lady or like Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire, or you know, Limp Biscuit, Scott Stapp, you know, just so heavy. I mean, you just knew you were capturing something like historic. John Bronco even knocked Jackson Brown off the top of Bob Magazine's Hottest Dudes in Rock number one ranking. I love you, John Bronco. The new Ford Bronco. Cause daddy wants a pony too. John Bronco also had a classic jingle he wrote for his breakfast cereal, Bronco's, called Get Bucked. Hi, who's ready for breakfast? Get bucked with super flavors. This bucket Bronco's gonna kick you out of bed with an oat crunch and a hint of sharp cheddar and pineapple cherry flavored gummy horseshoes. The track was later covered by reggae band Rasta Rasta and became a huge hit in Europe. John Bronco! Get Get ready to shred the roof of your mouth! To learn the whole story, check out John Bronco and John Bronco Rides Again, currently streaming on Hulu. I'll leave you with Bronco's final song, The Ballad of John Bronco. Go, go, Bronco mode It's gonna be insane We're going all to rain Grab your four by four We're gonna take off all the doors There's plenty of features you'll enjoy 
So buckle up there, cowboy. Go, go, Bronco Moe. Go, go, Bronco Moe. Bronco Moe. Well, let me ask you this then. Based on your findings, do you believe that Dr. Fauci and Bill Gates should be investigated for criminal wrongdoing? Yes. Plain and simple. Of course. I mean, I think Fauci's policies, 80% of the people who died from COVID should not have died. We should have been doing early treatment like the Chinese did. The Chinese put early treatment protocols with chloroquine, which is hydrox the cousin of hydroxychloroquine by April. They had protocols with all the drugs we know are effective, um, antibiotics, anticoagulants, anti-inflammatory steroids, hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, and then, you know, vitamins, vitamin D and kerosidin and, and um, you know, and they had dozens and dozens of Chinese herbs on their protocol that they published. And guess what? They obliterated the pandemic after a month and a half using early treatment. The Chinese had three deaths per million population. You know what Tony Fauci had? 2,200 Americans. We have the biggest body count in the world because of his policies. We have we have 4.2% of the global population. We had 14.5% of the casualty, COVID casualties. Why is that a success story? Of course, he should be criminally prosecuted. Because what he did was clearly, clearly, demonstrably purposeful, and I can prove that in front of a jury. We know that, and if you read, if you read my book, if you read my book, just the first chapter, you will see that indictment laid out clear as day. He deliberately sabotaged by by using fraudulent methodologies, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and promoted a drug that he knew was deadly, remdesivir. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I think you would acknowledge that the Chinese do not reveal or release any information. In all fairness, if you ask Russia how many people died as a result of the coronavirus, they'll tell you none. Because that's what Vladimir Putin is telling them to say. And you're never going to get the true numbers because it's communist. Whether, whether Putin wants to turn around and say that they're a democracy or not, they're not giving you the real numbers. And don't you, I mean, and we, we in the United I mean, States, well, we're well, so transparent. All, you know, listen, first of all, we aren't transparent. We're the opposite of transparent. In fact, yesterday, the FDA asked a federal court to allow it to not release its data in the Pfizer study for 55 years. That's not transparency. That's concealment. Virtually all of the policies, you know, on how deaths were calculated, how infection fatality rates were calculated, using the PCR test at 45 amplifications when they knew it would create 90% false positives, all of the manipulating the death certificates, all of the things that they did from the outset were designed to lie, to conceal from the public they, you know, what uh, the, the efficacy of drugs, the deadliness of COVID. CDC has admitted that 96% of the cases that of the deaths that it attributed to COVID could have been something else, that they had an average of 3.8 potentially deadly comorbidities. They have no idea how many people died from COVID. But 
it's not just China. There are all of the African countries, many, many other countries in the world that use different protocols and have tiny, tiny fractions of the death rates that we had. We had among the worst death rates in the world and by far the biggest body count on earth. So it's not just the Chinese are hiding things. Of course, that's a potential, but we were hiding things systematically in this country. Except somewhere along the line, all those other countries are asking us now for the ability to produce it. But I want to ask you a personal question here. To produce some... to produce the coronavirus vaccination uh, me, in their in their me, own country, I, I, but I, I want actually, actually no, no, I want to ask you something a personal question. You, you just made a statement that I think is uh, deceptive. Here's what Pfizer's own study shows. Pfizer's own study, which it cut off, it was supposed to do a three-year study, and it cut it off in six months. It unblinded the study and it gave the vaccine to the whole placebo group, so it didn't want anybody to be able to tell what's going to happen over the three years. It's ended that study. Then it gave it documents to the FDA to get a, to get a um, license. And here's what their documents show. Here's what the records of their, their own records show. And, and you can look this up in the first pages of my book, or you can go on F, FDA's website and see this. It's graph S4, table S4. They show that over the six-month period, there's 22,000 people in the placebo group, 22,000 in the vaccine group. In the vaccine group, one person died from COVID over six months of the 22,000. In the placebo group, two people died from COVID. That's their study. What they, they, they I'm sorry, and, and, I'm so sorry. And whose study, who study is that? Is this who Pfizer put out study? study, which they submitted to FDA. And I'm telling you the table number that you should go look at as for is their study. What they show is what they were able to claim is that the vaccine is 100% effective because two is 100% of one. And most Americans, when they hear that it's 100% effective against death, they're thinking that means if I the vaccine, I have a 100% chance of not dying, but that's not what it means. What it means is you have to give 22,000 vaccines to prevent one COVID death. And here's the bad news, Michael. In the vaccine group, over that six-month period, 22,000 people, there were 20 deaths of all-cause mortality. In the placebo group, there's only 14 Get that vaccine, according to Pfizer's own data, you're 48% more likely to die over the next six months. How are they dying? In the vaccine group, there were five deaths from heart attacks. In the placebo group, one death from a heart attack. That means you're 500% more likely to die of a heart attack if you take that vaccine over the next six months than if you do not. It also means that People, for every life they save from COVID, they are killing four people from heart attacks. Okay. That's I, I, Robert, I do, I do have to ask you, I got to ask you this personal question here, because uh, I need to back up for a moment, and I'm trying to understand something. Really how, and it's personal, how you became a part of all of this, right? Because um, obviously you are, and over the years, I've actually known about you, but mainly really from your work with the River Keepers and the movement to clean up the Hudson River. I'm very curious, what was the impetus that drove you from your environmental work into the world of anti-vaccination? I'm not, you know what, 
I'd appreciate it if you'd stop calling me anti-vax. That's like me calling you a convicted criminal every time I talk to you. It's a way of marginalizing fair, fair, you. Fair enough. Fair enough. And what, what would you like me? What, what term you should I use? I'm not anti-vax. Oh, give me the decency of not. There you the go. Same. No. What, what would you like me? What would you like me to say? Yeah, just into the world. I'm, of, a, I'm um, a. I'm a public health advocate. Public That's health advocate. Okay. Into the world of public health advocacy. Yeah. Oh. Uh, you asked me how I got into this. I got yes. into a light bulb kicking and screaming. I was suing. We have, you know, I, I ran the biggest water protection group in the world, the Waterkeeper Alliance. We have 350 waterkeepers, each one with a patrol boat. They patrol local waterways in 46 countries, and we sue polluters. And I had litigation against about 40 coal-burning power plants and cement kilns in North America, the province of Canada, and the United States around 2005. And there was a 2003 study by FDA that showed that every freshwater fish in America had dangerous levels of mercury in its flesh, every fish. We started suing the major sources of that mercury, which is coal burning power plants and cement kilns. I was going or traveling around North America, going, doing litigation and giving speeches about it. And women started coming up to me, these mothers, they were almost always well-dressed. They'd sit in the front row of my speeches, they'd come early and then afterwards they'd ask to talk to me. And they were all, as it turns out, the mothers of intellectually uh, damaged children, uh, disabled children, and most of them were diagnosed with autism. And they said to me that they believe that mercury and vaccines had disabled their children and had caused the injuries. And, uh, you know, I had been involved with intellectual disabilities my whole life. It's part of my family DNA. My aunt Eunice, who is my godmother, Eunice Shriver, founded uh, Special Olympics. I worked in Special Olympics as a hugger and a coach when I was eight years old. I spent 200 hours in Los Angeles for the retarded when I was in high school. And I've done that all my life, but it's not what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to protect rivers and work on energy policy. And then one of these women came to my home, a psychologist from Minnesota named Sarah Bridges, came to my home in the summer of 2005, found my home in, in Massachusetts and put a, put a huge pile, 18 inches thick of scientific studies on my front porch. And she said, I'm not leaving here till you read them. Her son, Porter, had been a, you know, a, a healthy, healthy child, exceeded all milestones for language, social reactions, et cetera. He had gotten the vaccines when he was 18 months old, and he had become profoundly um, intellectually disabled. He has severe autism today. I think he's 22 years old. He's non-toilet trained, nonverbal. She won $20 million in the vaccine court. She didn't want it to happen to other kids. And I started reading the science. And she, I sat there and read the abstracts of these studies. I read science for a living. It's how I litigate all the my litigation. Virtually all of it includes scientific controversies. And I have to know how to read science critically. So I began reading it. And before I was four inches in to that pile, 
I realized there was a huge delta between what the public health agencies and the pharmaceutical companies were telling us about vaccine safety and what the actual peer-reviewed published science was saying. And that began me down this trip down the, you know, down the wormhole that has incidentally at a huge cause. It was not a good career mode for me. It's had it's had very, very big cause. I could I could see I could see that. But I I, I first of all, let, let me say I have I have friends. Yeah, I have friends also who have children who have autism. And I remember when Donald made the same claim about how um, vaccinations uh, cause autism. It's obviously completely contrary to all the information that exists out there that I'm aware of from Autism Speaks and so on. And I'm just saying that simply because I yeah, know so many like, people you know and what? they were so they were so angry. Let me finish, Robert. They they were so angry that Donald would just so callously come up and say, because that's not where the science lies. But I want to ask you, since we're talking hey, wait about like, science, like, wait, like, let me just ask you, like, let me you ask you this. Say that. You can't just throw those bombs and then walk away from them and go to the next subject. It is what the science says. It's not. It's what, not. It's not. Let's it's just not, say that we'll agree okay, hey, to Michael, disagree. Let's, let's talk it's about the not science. true. Michael, let's talk about the science then, because I, I'll tell you this. What you're going to cite to me is what autism speak, which is run by the pharmaceutical industry and what what public health authorities say, but it's not what the science says. What I'm telling you is I read peer-reviewed science. And if you go to our website, you'll see 300 independent peer-reviewed publications from Harvard, from Stanford, from NIH, from CDC, all of them showing that autism is caused by vaccines. So what you're hearing is from Tony Fauci and your buddies who are working for the pharma. It is not oh, science. They're not working for the, the pharmacy. They're working to make sure that their children are taken care of. But since we're talking about science, well, so I want to ask you this. I want to ask you this, because you're also outspoken about the damage that 5G networks can do to human DNA. If you would, can you explain how this works, what you believe the larger goal of this technology to be? Well, okay, there's two issues. One is, you know, does 5G cause DNA damage and does it cause cellular damage? And again, the science is very clear and we just won that lawsuit against FCC. But there, And we submitted, I think, 10,000 pages of, of studies. And that was only a fraction of the studies that are out there that show that this, that Wi-Fi radiation causes horrendous damage to human beings at a cellular level, to every organ. You ask what the intention of 5G is, the, the intention of 5G, there's three intentions. First of all, you see the ads on TV that 5G has come to your neighborhood and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that looks really good. You know, that these ads are great and my life is going to be changed. And then you start thinking to yourself, what is it going to do for me? It's going to allow me to download a video game in six seconds rather than nine seconds. No, what they're not putting 5G up there for you. 5G is for machine to machine communication. So what it's doing is it's, it does three things. One is it allows data harvesting. Data harvesting is the new, like, you know, is the oil fields of the 1920s, unregulated oil field. Your data has value. For many years, they've been able to get your data. You, you have Siri sitting in your house, recording every time you cough, every time you sneeze, when you talk about a new mattress, new shoes. Siri is hearing you. Siri does not work for you. 
she works for Bill Gates and for Apple and for, you know, those guys. Gates is building a, a city in Arizona, 80,000 people. It's just a huge data center that is going to allow him to take all that data at these spy devices, your garage door opener, you know, everything in your house, your microwave oven, your GPS, your Apple Watch are all recording your heartbeat, every aspect of your life. And they, to date, they, they've been able to get that data, but they can't transport it. They can't subject it to analytics and they can't monetize it. And 5G is going to allow them to strip mine that data, bring it to analytics, um, centers like the one that Gates is building and monetize it and sell it back to industries, to retailers, et cetera, to whom it is very, very valuable. The second thing that 5G does is it's a, it's a methodology for, for political control and social controls. Bill Gates brags that his 60,000 satellites are going to be able to surveil every square inch of the planet Earth 24 hours a day. So they have facial recognition systems. They have all of these, you know, everybody's GPS data. And you look what China's doing with it. You know, China is already ahead of us on it. And what are they doing? Every time you go out of your house, there's facial recognition devices that are tracking and tracing everywhere you go. They now have a system where they can read guilt on your face. They have a computer software that allows them to look at guilt and it's pre-crime. Too bad that they didn't give that to the judge in my specific case because they realized that more than 90% of the bullshit that was said about me is absolutely a lie. But I want to ask you this question, if if I can, because um, you know, we're coming close towards the end of the hour. You know, I'm just a podcaster and I know that you get a lot of slack from a lot of people based upon your views. And that's it probably in your opinion, that's fine. Very much like it was the same with me. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. But in 2019, Absolutely. right. I mean, it's, that's our democracy. In 2019, your siblings, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend and, um, Joseph P. Kennedy II, as well as your niece, penned an essay in Politico entitled, RFK Jr. is our brother and uncle. He's tragically wrong about vaccines. If I can ask you, what's your relationship like with the rest of your family as these issues around vaccination, and it's a hot topic, right, have become so contentious and polarizing? First of all, I would say this. That I have studied vaccines. I've written books on them. I've written hundreds and hundreds of articles on them. I've litigated on them. And so I have a better understanding of them than people in my family. Uh, there's a there's a logical fallacy, which means a, an error, a logical error that is famously called an appeal to authority. And it's what you just did when you were talking to me. You said vaccines are safe because Autism Speaks says they're safe, or Tony Fauci says they're safe, or Francis Collins, or CDC. Or the FDA, or the government. Or right. And that is not science. Science is not what FDA says. These are captured agencies, and they're corrupt. Science is not what CDC says. Science is what you, you find in the published peer-reviewed publications in PubMed. And even those you have to read critically. You cannot take them at face value. You have to separately investigate them and you have to use your brain. 
And nobody does that because they use that logical fallacy that is called appeals to authority. They believe what Tony Fauci says and says that's science, but that isn't science. He'd like you to believe that science, but it isn't. So my family has a long, long entanglement with public health authorities. My, there's members of my family that created these agencies that have funded them for years. My uncle Teddy was uh, a chair of the Health Committee in the United States Senate for 50 years. He wrote the budgets for Fauci, for uh, Collins, for all of these people. And my sister was Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, where NIH is, and she has deep, deep connections. And everybody in my family grew up believing that these were people who were heroes. And so naturally, they're horrified when I say, wait a minute, I'm actually reading the science, and what those guys are saying is a lie. They can't believe it. And, you know, so I don't, listen, I was raised, I have 11 brothers and sisters in my family, and we were raised to argue with each other, like you and I are doing right here, without bitterness, and to take different positions, and, you know, and that is, we were raised to do that, and to walk away and love each other. So, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I would rather them not attack me. Obviously, I'm not going to say that I like it. <laughs> of course. Does it, does it destroy my relationship with them? No. I, I go to the Cape in the summers. I spend weekends with them. I'm about to go skiing with all of them over in, you know, Colorado. And, you know, I, so that's just the way it works. I'm not troubled by that. I, you know. What can I say? They don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. So, uh, so some of the things that some of the things, Robert, that you say uh, that you know, there's a lot of corruption that's going on. Whether it's the FDA, the NIH, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, and so on and so forth. But on top of that, you also accused the New York Times of lying on numerous occasions. Um, you know, and I think you lie. Like you, you are you, you Michael, accused. Michael, I'm going to talk Michael, about Michael, about Michael, Michael, about Michael, the. Michael. I'm going to give you. Let me finish, yeah, and I'm going to tell you example. what it was. What it was yeah. that you accused them of about I'm lying about the victories. efficacy. Well, well, you did. What, you accused them they, of lying about. You you accused them of lying about the efficacy of vaccinations. Uh, I'm just curious. Like, what, wait a minute. Show me the quote. Well, I don't have the quote in front of me. We're on. We're 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 on a podcast. Uh, but, yeah, but I will send. I, I will send it to you. I, I don't. I'll tell you I what. If you tell context. me that you didn't, Robert. If you tell me that you didn't, I believe you. I was just. I'm asking. not going to tell you that I didn't because I don't know what the context was. If it was a specific statement that I was objecting to, I don't remember what it was. Fair enough. Let me let me then just ask you. I have two more questions for you, and um, <laughs> then and we by can. By the way, you know. Does the New York Times lie about stuff all the time? Yes, they do. I'm not, but so I then just, let me ask you the question that I was hoping to ask without turning around and saying that you accused anybody since you believe the New York Times lied about the efficacy of vaccinations or, or other information. Yes. Are I they do. part? Or do you think that they're part of a larger conspiracy to silence um, your movement for public health advocacy? Well, I... That, that's kind of a loaded question. Do I think that? Here's what I would say, because I'm I'm pretty close to saying yes to that question. I would say all of these groups are censoring people. So the CDC is censoring, the social media companies are censoring, 
Um, the New York Times is clearly censoring. They have not, you know, New York Times used to print my editorials every six months until I got on vaccines and now they won't have anything to do with me. And they will not let me write a letter to the editor when they put something erroneous in their paper, direct attacks on me, they will not give me the traditional right to reply that for a hundred years, the Times has given to everybody famous who they slander or they criticize, there's always a right to reply except for one person, and that's me. Well, let me let me join you. Well, let me join you, Robert, as the second person, because uh, there are many articles in the New York Times, one specific with Megan Toohey, where she accused me of telling her that I had gone to Prague. I have never been to the Czech Republic. I've never even been close to the Czech Republic. And, in my, you, and, they and, would, and I did. I called the editor-in-chief, and he said that she said that you told her that, so we're sticking with it. But, you know, as we end the, the episode, Episode. I want to switch gears, really switch gears. And this is just something, um, you know, a historical type of question. Um, I want to talk to you about Sirhan Sirhan's parole, because I understand that you actually support um, his parole. What's behind your desire to see your father's assassin uh, freed? I'm, I'm just curious from a from a personal perspective. Well, there's two answers. And one is, that first of all, I believe that he's entitled to parole, even if he did kill my father. After 50 years in jail, I don't think my father would want him to. He's not a threat to anybody. And he's clearly very remorseful about his role in my father's assassination. Did, did he shoot my father? No, absolutely not. Anybody who looks at the facts or reads Thomas Noguchi's autopsy report will come to the same conclusion that Noguchi did, which my father, which was, and I'll tell you briefly, Sirhan Sirhan was waiting for my father in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel. He fired two shots directly toward my father from about six feet. One of those shots struck Paul Schrade, who was one of my father's best friends. He was the second in command of the UAW, and he's the guy who introduced my dad to Cesar Chavez. The other shot went past my father and hit the door jam directly behind his head, and it was later removed from police. After the second shot, Sirhan's hand was grabbed. He was thrown onto the steam table by Rosie Greer, Rayford Johnson, and four other people, and they made a dog pile on top of him. They put his gun facing away from my father, and but they could not get it away from him. And he fired six more shots and emptied the chamber. All of those shots hit people. Five people were hit, one of them twice. We know what happened to every bullet in his gun. Not one of them hit my father. My father was killed by four shots, according to the autopsy. Fired all of them from behind, and all of them were contact shots. That means the barrel of the gun Noguchi found, and his autopsy is called the perfect autopsy in the medical literature. He literally flew in the best corners because he didn't want to happen what happened in Dallas. He flew in the best corners, including all the corners from all the armed services, the top corner, to observe him in the theater and watch everything what he did. And what he found was the fourth shots that killed my father were all contact shots, meaning the barrel of the gun was touching his skin, in the case of the one that hit him behind the ear, or his jacket. In the case of the three, one was fired into his neck, one into his back, one passed harmlessly through his shoulder pad. 
the one that lodged in his brain was the only one they got out that recovered in good enough shape to, to check it against Sirhan's gun, and it did not come from Sirhan's gun. The other three, the projectiles went into the went on an upward trajectory through my father's body into the ceiling. The guy who fired those shots was Eugene Thane's taser, who is was a, a security guard who led my father towards Sirhan, and then while Sirhan was Firing, Cesar drew his gun and fired from behind. My father fell back on Cesar, but he must have known that Cesar was shooting him because he turned and pulled off Cesar's clip on tie. And if you see pictures of my father lying on the floor of the Ambassador Hotel, he's holding that tie in his hand. And there's pictures of Cesar not wearing his tie. Why do you think that? Why do you think that this man killed your father? Do you have any idea? What? What, why do you think this man killed your father? Well, he had a hatred of the Kennedys. He also, by the way, there was, there was a dozen eyewitnesses that saw him. He, my father fell on him. And when he got up, he had his gun drawn, which he didn't deny. He said, oh, I was shooting it at Sirhan. Clearly, he was not. And then he got rid of the gun and he lied about when he got rid of it. But it has since been located. He um, Cesar was hated my father because he was extreme racist and he thought my father was turning the country over to blacks. He was um, he was an employee. He had only had that job as a security guard at a security for three days. So he got the job when he knew my father was going to be there. He then um, he worked. His full time job was at the Lockheed plant which is a defense plant. And he, Lisa Pease, who, who did publish her book on my father's death, which is a very good book, although it makes some controversial charges that I'm not sure of. Um, but she found out this year that, um, say for the first time, say because long suspected that he was a CIA agent because most of the people, or many of the people who worked, who had top security clearance at that plant, which he did, were also CIA assets. She found employment papers by Cesar in which he identifies himself as a CIA agent. So, um, you know. But, but again, you know, my just uh, in, in finishing, um, so you do have a desire to see him free. You're a better man than, than I am. I couldn't be as forgiving. Um, I understand, you know, you have your theory on it. Obviously, many people have other theories on it. Robert, let me say thank you for joining me today. You're right. We don't agree on virtually, virtually anything as anything. it relates, as it relates to, as it relates to this. But I certainly respect your opinion into it. You're entitled to your opinion, as, a, as am I. Um, and you know what? We'll find out down the road one day, right? Who's right and who's wrong. But I do want to thank you for joining me uh, today. And um, I will never call you an anti-vax again. You are a public health advocate. Thank you. <laughs> be, be well, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. You too. And now for today's mea culpa. I'm not sure what else I could add to what you've just heard beyond, whoa, Holy fucking shit! Again, Robert Kennedy is entitled to his opinion. Unfortunately, his name carries with it an element of public responsibility to which Kennedy carries a burden of responsibility. 
I'm sure in his mind, he's using his good name to end what he believes to be an insidious and dangerous practice. Who knows, in 50 years, we may look back on RFK as a latter-day prophet, warning us of our dangerous reliance on unproven and dangerous vaccines. But more than likely, he will drag down the Kennedy name even deeper into the muck. It's ironic that the most prominent Kennedy at the moment, beyond JFK, whose assassination report was recently reclassified by President Biden, is JFK Jr. who became a topic of intense speculation by followers of QAnon that JFK Jr. would be resurrected and appear in Dealey Plaza. On November 2nd, at the site overlooking where President John F. Kennedy was assassinated nearly six decades ago, scores of QAnon believers outfitted with Trump Kennedy 2024 shirts, flags, and other merchandise gathered. They forecast the president's son, John F. Kennedy Jr., who had unfortunately died over 20 years ago, would appear at that spot, emerging from anonymity to become Donald Trump's vice president when the former president is reinstated. The prophecy foretold online, of course, did not come true. That did not stop thousands from converging in Dallas to witness this resurrection or the ensuing online hoopla. But it underscores the weird, fucked up world of conspiracy and alternative facts in which we now live. This interview is case in point. How do you disprove conspiracy? When I asked Kennedy why he pushed for the parole of his father's assassin, Sirhan Sirhan, I expected to hear a plea for mercy that 50 years was long enough. Instead, we finished the interview with a flurry of conspiracy. In Kennedy's mind, it was another man, possibly sent by the CIA, who fired the assassin's bullet. Kennedy said this with all the certainty that he had stated his facts about COVID-19 and the danger of Dr. Fauci. In the end though, Kennedy is the living embodiment of this fractured post-truth era, where a tumble down the rabbit hole of conspiracy is mistaken for a search for truth. The only other person I've met who talks like Kennedy is Donald Trump. What does that tell you? To me, a lot, a little, I don't know. Hit me up on Twitter and tell me what you think. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.